Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to dearest product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Jodine Stoddart. Jodine is the director of Fireside Consulting, the UX and design coaching, service design, regenerative design and conscious leadership coaching practice that she founded in 2019. As someone who is inspired by the potential for design to help solve complex problems, Jodine is also the co-founder of the online UX community called UX Connect, through which she runs regular leadership retreats. Clearly a connector, Jodine was also the co-organizer of the UX Auckland meetup for over five years, passing on the baton in April of 2019. Prior to Fireside Consulting, Jodine was the Director of User Experience at Digital Arts Network in New Zealand, where she worked with key clients such as Auckland Council, Countdown Supermarkets and Spark. She was also a senior user experience consultant at Optimal Usability, then the leading New Zealand design research consultancy, which was sold to PricewaterhouseCoopers in 2014. As someone who is highly thought of in the local UX community, it's my pleasure to have Jodine here with me today to share her perspectives with our global Brave UX community. Jodine, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brendan. Nice to be here. It's great to have you here. This is a chat that's been a few months in the making. And like I mentioned, you are someone who's really respected in the local community here. And as soon as I put out a call for guests for the show, there were so many wonderful people that I know uh, that had put your name forward. So it's really great to have you. Now, I did notice when I was researching for today that you have many creative aspects to who you are and they extend past design and in particular one of the realms that that your creativity extends into is the musical realm and I understand in certain circles you're known by another name DJ Chica who or what is DJ Chica? (laughs) DJ Chica? um, Chica ah there I go I should have checked that with you first That's okay, because the way I spell it, it often gets misspelled or mispronounced, but that's okay. Yeah, DJ Chica is a is a bit of a, a persona that has been created over a number of years. I started DJing in 2011, just after I returned to New Zealand, after some time away and working in Melbourne. And uh, yeah, it just keeps going. It just keeps going strong for some reason. People just respond really well to my music selections, and that just seems to hold um, fast. Yeah. Now, I understand that part of what you do is you produce music for what's called ecstatic dance. What is that? Did I get that right? What is ecstatic dance? Good question. So I guess I first make the distinction that, you know, I'm not, I'm learning how to produce music at the moment and producing music is quite different from DJing. So I mostly select other people's music, but for ecstatic dance, it's kind of like a sober rave, you know, it's an environment 
people can come and it's not a club, you know, like a lot of people want to dance, but they don't want to go to some club, you know, it's not, you know, humans love to move their bodies to music, but often the context isn't what they want to participate in. So ecstatic dance really offers the community an opportunity to have an experience that is, I guess, intentionally designed. So the ecstatic dance is just not like, you know, four to the floor house music, you know, bashing out techno or drum and bass, you know, the whole time. It's very different. It's crafted to be a journey is what we call it. So it deliberately has a start, a middle and a, and a close. So ecstatic, you know, is, is a funny word, but really what it describes is just that peak moment, you know, that that's designed into the series of tracks where everyone feels quite elated naturally, naturally high, if you will, of, of movement and dancing and sharing experience together. So that's how I would describe it. I'm getting some insight into, and we don't know each other well at all, right? We've just met, but I'm getting some insight into how your skills in coaching and in design are quite complementary to what you've described there about the the sort of movement of the journey that you take people on through ecstatic dance and the music that you're selecting. I understand that during lockdown in particular, you were involved in an initiative that seemed to me, looking from the outside in any way, that it was an ecstatic dance kind of initiative called Frock downs. What were the frock downs? And I'm not sure if they're still going now that we're no longer in lockdowns, but what were they? Tell us about them. This is great. You've really done your homework, Brendan. <laughs> yeah, so the frock down was really, we called it the social medicine movement, which was the collective that was surrounding the frock down events. And really it was a way of um, providing a sense of connection um, when we're all really physically isolated. I think in the 2020 lockdowns, I was doing DJ lives. I see a lot of friends and a lot of international DJs do these where you, you DJ online from your home. You, you kind of set up a nice background so it looks atmospheric, but you're just using what you've got and um, you broadcast to the world, you know. And this was a fun way both to keep, obviously, my skills as a DJ fresh, keep downloading tracks, stay engaged with the community. But for that 2021, um, it became more of a lineup and they became quite complex events to organize. And sometimes it was actually quite stressful. <laughs> so we, were, we were transitioning from one DJ to the next as a lineup, but obviously across across New Zealand. So we had people contributing from Christchurch, Auckland, Waiheke, obviously, and beyond. So, But yeah, they were really successful in terms of offering people something to do on a Saturday night, basically, you know something to watch or even participate in so people would get up and dance in their lounge and, and felt like they, they had a social life when we weren't supposed to be. So Yeah, for, for those of you who are listening that aren't in New Zealand, you would have had your own experience of the pandemic and the social isolation that resulted. In New Zealand here, we had what were called lockdowns, as we've just been talking about, and literally it was no contact, physical contact with people outside of your home environment. You know, you couldn't even you couldn't even really go and see your neighbours or do anything. So sounds like it was quite an important initiative that you're involved in for mental health, not just your own, but also the you know other people that weren't able to get out and about and do the things that they were used to doing. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't help but notice that you didn't study design, which isn't in itself, I suppose, that atypical when it comes to people who work in design. But your undergraduate degree was in something or in, in two things, actually, that were quite distinctive, at least to me. They sort of stood out from the range of people that I've had on the show. You have a Bachelor of Social Science and Human Geography and Gender Studies. 
what was it? And I know I know we're sort of, you know, taking a little bit of a walk down memory lane here, but what was it that drew you to those particular topics? Mm, yeah, great question. It's a bit of a story. I guess it kind of starts with doing an American field scholarship in my last year at high school. So I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to spend a year in Argentina. I, I learned Spanish and I I was curious about Latin culture in general at that time anyway, and uh, I wanted to go deeper. So this was an opportunity to, to be in a Latin country and really kind of understand what it was all about. And at that young age, I think I was 16, 16 turning 17, what I found was like, oh, you know, this is a different culture, but everything feels the same. Like people still get up, they have breakfast, they have lunch, you know, they things and it all feels the same but at the same time it's completely different and it really blew my mind and uh, I had two paths obviously at the end of high school I could have gone to polytech and studied graphic design and that was sort of the obvious path for me at the time because I'd, I'd done a lot of design contribution to the student newspaper at the high school and things like that so design was definitely you know front and center but that experience in another culture really kind of made me curious about humans and when I saw the option at university about what I could study with social anthropology. Understanding people in place was really important to me. So that was, I guess, the human geography part of it and, and the social science. Gender studies, I guess, is, is quite a, a personal journey. Like I really identified quite strongly as a, as a feminist when I was a teenager. And that was something that emerged out of watching my own mother struggle um, with the circumstances at the time. So, and I don't mind showing this because this was really a pivotal moment for me when I guess my parents, you know, divorced when I was a teenager and I watched my mum struggle on the domestic purposes benefit at the time with three kids. And it really transformed our whole economic situation and the options available to us, obviously. And then I remember with what happened with the government at the time is that those benefits got further rolled back. And I saw the impact that had on my mum. And I was just like, you know, I will, I will never want to put myself in that position of having to rely on, you know, government support and really seeing, you know, what happens in a woman's life when you're dependent on either a provider or the government as a provider or, or your husband as a provider. So that really, I think, caused this shift to really focus on women's rights and, and feminism. And that was really strong in my early years at university as well. So Was this Ruth Richardson and the mother of all budgets that you're referring to yeah. in terms of the cuts to benefits? Yeah. Yeah. I remember that time as well. I grew up in a solo parent household um, with with my mum in a similar circumstance. So I've also had first-hand uh, front row seat to what that was like and feel, feel very passionately about gender equality and income equality. Uh, certainly an area, I suppose, gender studies at the moment, which is of, of huge interest globally. And it has, I imagine it has um, grown a lot, the field in, in terms of gender as a spectrum now. Um, which wasn't possibly so much on the the forefront of the agenda then, but how has how have that how have these experiences these you know your experience seeing your mum your your subsequent studies how have they flown through the things that stood out to you from those experiences into the way in which you've practiced design and potentially even uh, the way in which you're now coaching other designers to improve their practice and improve their their world. Absolutely. Well, I guess my interest in design is that it is a powerful way to create impact on the world, you know, and coaching also, coaching designers, people that are in a position to 
make change and I do coach a lot of women as well so uh, not exclusively but it does tend to be you know the the people that reach out to me are, are women that have an interest in you know growing their skills and leadership and growing their influence so yeah and it's a real privilege to be able to support women in tech you know I, I think it's incredibly important that they they get that extra boost to have the confidence to put themselves forward um, for for further roles of influence and to know how to respond um, to the environment around them with that kind of confidence in themselves. Is this something, given that you've worked almost entirely either in a consulting freelance capacity or through, I suppose, design agencies, through an external consulting design uh, capacity, is this something that you have experienced this coaching as being particularly strong in that area of our industry? Uh, I guess, sorry, just to understand, clarify that question. So you're wanting to understand, was coaching present in, you know, in, in an agency style role? Yeah, because looking from the outside in at your career path, you obviously got to a very senior level at Digital Arts Network, which is one of New Zealand's, you know, I suppose, premier UX consultancies. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, obviously do more than that, but that is one of their key strengths. You know, when you were coming up through Optimal and, and Dan and through your other work experiences, was coaching, particularly for, for female design designers or design leaders, was this something that was sy- systemic in the way in which you've seen your own experience in the industry and others have experiences of, or is this an area that's lacking and that you felt compelled to do something about? Mm, Good question. I would say that coaching is just a way that I respond to my environment and the way I support people around me. And what I realized is it was very natural. And that's how I ended up in, you know, in a coaching business for myself. And uh, of course, yeah, I, I often mentored other designers and researchers and I've done a lot of teaching, you know, user testing, usability testing. It just seems to be a natural fit for me personally. I wouldn't say that it's it's always present in the industry itself, but I think that it's growing. I think, I think because there are a lot of people that are wanting to get into UX, it's a very popular field now. People are wanting those opportunities to grow their skills and capability. And so it, it's becoming more popular, but I wouldn't say that it was always, you know, something that was, was there. I just want to rewind the clock a little bit before we move deeper into helping organizations build UX capability to to an experience that you had, or a couple of experience actually, after you moved to Australia. So you mentioned you came back from Australia in 2011. I understand that probably quite soon after you moved over there, you had a couple of experiences, one of which was being one of 20 people selected to visit India as part of the Oxfam Community Leadership Program. But it's the second one that I wanted to speak to you about, which was you spent three months in Belize, which is in South or Central, Central South America. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and you were volunteering for a foundation called the Cornerstone Foundation. And you described this, and I'll just quote you now, you described this as my most cherished, culturally rich and challenging learning experience. So where is, well, we've already talked about where is Belize, Central America, but what was it that made you your time there so memorable? I guess the, the depth that you go into when you're living in the community that you're working within. So the Cornerstone Foundation it does a, an amazing job of getting volunteers that are living in the foundation itself. So kind of not a lot of separation, you know. Um, you're, you're 
deeply immersed in the context and they were really wonderful in terms of trying to meet each volunteer's desires for what they actually wanted to do in the community and there was so much I mean obviously there was a lot of different programs and things that needed support and so I got to choose I got to do support women in business support um, youth in schools, record some uh, natural healers in the jungle, you know, so it was quite a diverse, (laughs) quite a diverse range of projects that I got involved in. And I think that's what really made it memorable for me. Mm. And you returned to central Latin America, I suppose, more broadly speaking, you know, you mentioned that during your last year of high school, you had that time over there, you learned to speak Spanish. I was actually curious about Belize and had a look at its its national languages. And apparently English is, uh, is number one, it's the official language, but Spanish is pretty far up there in terms of it's uh, widely spoken in Belize. How important was understanding Spanish and having some exposure to Latin culture previously to your ability to connect with the people that you were working with over there in that capacity? It had something to bear, but I I will say that I did choose Belize because it was English speaking, because I wanted to, you know, do this experience of doing social work and I didn't want the language to be a constraint. So obviously there are lots of different volunteer programs all around Latin America and I could have chosen to do one in Spanish, but I didn't feel like, you know, my my Spanish was proficient at a sort of a professional level um, work day to day in it. So yeah, I had deliberately chosen that for that. And that's also what made it really different because it it's an incredible mix of cultures. You know, you've got obviously the Spanish, but you've also got the influence of the Caribbean culture really, really strongly, more strongly than elsewhere that I've spent time in, in Latin America. So Yeah, right, because it's on the East Coast. It's it's next to Guatemala, but it, it shares the, the coast is on the East Coast, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's sort of more like Jamaica <laughs> mm-hmm, in terms mm-hmm. of culturally than it is like Guatemala. So going over the border into Guatemala or up into Mexico, that felt familiar to me, whereas Belize was, was really quite unique. Have you made it back to Latin America since that experience? Uh, yeah, I have. Um, I think I went to Chile would have been the last time and that was an amazing experience. Chile is so similar to New Zealand in terms of its uh, natural environment. I was quite blown away and yeah, I, I, I will always go back. It's sort of part of me. It's part of my heart in some ways. So I really love it. Well, I promised that we'd, we'd come to UX and building capability in, in organizations through UX. Now, as I mentioned in your intro, you were a director of UX at Digital Arts Network sometimes known locally as Dan. And during your time there uh, and at Optimal, you provided what, I, what I'm framing up as UX consulting services to your clients. And some of those engagements, from what I can gather, were aimed at increasing the design maturity or the capability within the client organization. How much of the success of those types of engagements was a result of the individual maturity levels on the client team side yeah maturity is everything (laughs) (laughs) there's a big pause there and we're going to leave that in on purpose (laughs) where where an organization is at you know in terms of what we call ux maturity you know you you really change your approach in terms of engaging according to to where they're at and this is something i spoke about i think one of my first conference talks was about ux coaching and what were the conditions that would help make it more successful and um, one of the conditions is that there's you know 
customer centric language and in, in, in some of those you know strategic documents from an organization so so that it's got sufficient buy-in because if you're if you're working just with a, a team within a department and there's no wider buy-in that's just it, it's a struggle it, it, it's almost um you know you're not going to get the resourcing and you know the hires and the tools and 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 the time to to do the work that's necessary so yeah you framed that up i watched that talk i think you framed it up as needing to see customer centricity as part of the core strategy of the organization and that if they weren't able to sort of point to some sort of for- formative document that speaks to that then it it did become much more difficult to engage difficult or impossible I would never say impossible because I'm I'm optimistic. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you know, yeah there are a number of strategies. It really depends on what else is on fire within the organization, you know, where is it, its attention? Mm-hmm. And and something that I speak to in that talk as well is is there needs to be a sufficient level of pain around something that the organization isn't able to achieve but needs to in order to um, create again that appetite otherwise yeah. yeah and that that can create a lot of change just that in itself you also spoke about the importance of conversation and i know that this is something that has flown through at least your public talks and other things that i was able to access in preparation for today as being a cornerstone to use that word again a cornerstone of uh, i suppose effective change making change effectively is using conversations how have you engaged or can you can you talk to maybe a recent engagement where you've spent that time and had those conversations with stakeholders and the role that that played or 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 didn't play in influencing a positive project outcome absolutely yeah i tend to start every project with a series of stakeholder interviews which is always advisable but stakeholder interviews doesn't really even describe what happens and when you get that time and it's great to build it in as part of the methods because they just say, oh, that's an activity we need to tick off. But what it actually is, is a way for you to land within the organization and understand what's going on. It's an opportunity to build relationship through having that time one-on-one so it feels safe. They're able to be themselves and share um, authentically about their challenges, um, what's getting in the way of their goals and vision for their role of the organization, for the team, for the product. And it's just a way to start, you know, laying the ground the ground for, for the project to be a success. So obviously a typical stakeholder interview question is, you know, what does success look like to you? And that's always a really great question and a revealing one about what's important to that person and their role. And from there, you know, utilize that information, synthesize it, actually use it as data for the project and how you're going to go forward from that point onwards to, yeah kind of direct the, the the other discussions and conversations that will follow. So. I'm not sure if you've had this experience, but what have you done, if you have, if in those stakeholder conversations, you know, you sit down with a number of stakeholders one-on-one and you ask them that question about what does success look like to you and you get different answers or answers that are materially different, I suppose, is the is the key point here, to each other. How have you if you've experienced this, how have you reconciled those perspectives and potentially attempted to integrate them? Like what have you done in that situation? Mm. I guess I try to integrate as much of, you know, the diverse needs as possible because your stakeholders are your users in, a, in another form, right? And 
I can't recall a time where, where the outcomes that people wanted were completely in opposition. Generally, the people you're interviewing are you know, aware of why you were called in to help with this project and what the initiatives there to, you know. So this, there generally is some coherence before they're going to spend money to involve a consultant. So you don't get blank stares. Who are you again? What what are you here yeah, for? Yeah, yeah. So I guess yeah, surprising. Sometimes that can happen if you 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 know you you stretch out beyond the sort of an immediate project team and and you get to different mm-hmm. people and you can identify internal conflict and that can be really tricky. I guess another example of that would be when I'm doing a service design project and it involves you know a leadership team across that have different views across different departments the way I tend to bring them together and into alignment is you know obviously we do a lot of workshops around um, what they know and we get them to kind of discuss it with amongst themselves and facilitate them have productive conversations around it and around um, an external artifact that's quite neutral and we can identify any kind of differences of of experience or view or um, understanding and then when that's identified we can go out and do research and actually you know see what's actually going on under the hood and that could be research internally like what's happening with this process in this area or externally you know what's happening with the actual customer need and their experience and then playing that back does tend to unite everybody because it's this this outside in kind of perspective and it's directly from the customer's voice and it becomes very difficult to negate that when you have evidence. So I tend to, that's I guess how I tend to kind of even out any tensions is just through the process and the journey of the project. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it also, I suppose, maintains the, the sanctity of that stakeholder interview or interview series where you're not necessarily taking directly threads that you might hear of any dissonance or differences of of opinion in that context. You're actually bringing them together in a workshop setting and externalizing, you know, through the use of the artifact or artifacts that you spoke of and helping them come to those agreements or realizations as a group. That makes a lot of sense. Now you, you, you mentioned research and moving, you know, moving into gathering evidence to either, I suppose, prove or disprove uh, people's beliefs or hypotheses about what the current state looks like and where they might need to go. In reference, this again coming back to 2015 now, so it was some time ago when this talk was delivered, um, you said, and I'll quote you again, you want to get them in front of users as fast as possible. So seven years on, do you still feel the same way? Yeah, I'd have to say yes. I mean, if I think about a project I did last year and where I had the opportunity to interview principals from around New Zealand that was really very interesting and then play those interviews back um, to the organization that was supporting them and it just blew their mind it always does it's kind of like the you know fail safe <laughs> way of really uniting people into action they're like oh gosh wow they really have a lot of pain at that part of the process wow we really have to do something so yeah and when it comes to working with a client team who has a appetite or a desire to be hands-on involved in the design work and the research that goes into that. How do you help people who are maybe inexperienced, have never done it before potentially and sat down and had a conversation with a customer or, or a user of their product or service? How do you help them to reach a level of comfort where they can be effective in that context? Yeah. Um, I, 
I've done a lot of that, you know. Uh, I've been supporting a software company here for the last um, couple of years and they had no design practice whatsoever, let alone research, and kind of pulled together a, a team of um, people that had zero experience and I was like, great, this is going to be interesting. How do I get it? <laughs> Blank canvas. Yeah, totally blank canvas. And, yeah, I, I kind of always balance it with a mixture of, of theory and practice, right? So the sooner I can get them, I, I get them practicing interviews amongst themselves after first teaching them, you know, about um, the theory around doing interviews and things to be mindful of. And then so practicing amongst themselves in a safe environment. And then I will, um, they'll ride shotgun with me in a few interviews and watch me do it. And then I'm like, okay, you can take this last one, have a go, and then I'll get them feedback. So yeah, it's just a, a gradual process. I'm not going to drop anyone in the deep end because that freaks people out, right? When they go too far outside their comfort zone and they feel really put on the spot. You certainly do have that gradual approach. And, and I definitely agree that if you just drop people into the deep end straight away, it can actually be detrimental overall to how they feel about what they're trying to do. And also it can be just an awkward thing to watch and experience as well. So that makes a lot of sense. What have been some of the key areas of improvement that you've observed when you've been working with people who are new to design research? What are some of the gotchas or the the things that that, that tech Technic the technicalities that they need to refine are, are there any things that stand out to you as areas for improvement from your experience there when they're new to it you mean yeah like what are the common mistakes people are making and things that they can focus on doing mm. better the first thing that comes to mind would be if they are i guess being too attached to the product that they're trying to learn about because they're not used to practicing that kind of neutrality objectivity and so their questions will be biased by by their experience with the product or service and their perspective and where they've been sitting this whole time you know if they haven't had that experience outside of that so that's that's a continuous one you know to keep working on with people I find that don't have any kind of formal research background or training it's very easy for companies especially at the moment, to be testing their own work, design te teams that are te testing their own work. And that's, I call that validation. It's not evaluation, you know, and, and that's where I see a lot of poor practice, to be honest, is it's like, okay, well, we need to do this, you know, let's just check that we're, that this is the right thing. <laughs> yeah. A lot of assumptions yeah, in there. Yeah. Other things that I commonly see. Yeah, it, it takes a lot of time. There's the art of writing a good question, a research question. It takes a lot of time to really master that. And so working with somebody like a coach or, you know, someone that is experienced, I think is essential to continually revise questions and how they're phrased. That, that's a common, common mistake. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's an area of of continu continual improvement. I spoke with uh, Jason Buell on the show a couple of weeks ago, and the, this um, notion of the feedback loop for researchers in order to improve their practice is quite common in, in academia and other areas of of study. You know, such as psychology, for example. There's there's often a number of thousands of hours that people have to do in contact with patients in this case before they they're actually certified but in industry in ux in particular there's nothing really of that nature yet what you're describing that ability to sit alongside someone as they i suppose get their training wheels and in running interviews is so vital 
and it just doesn't scale particularly well because it's a sort of one-to-one real-time thing. And it would be nice to see more of that, I believe, in practice. Absolutely, because there are subtleties. Like, There's a lot of material out there. Obviously, there's lots of, you know, short courses you can do. There's lots of, you know, books you can read. But nothing beats, you know, when you've got an actual project and the nuances that are involved. You can't really replace that. So this kind of idea of learning by doing in project is, is usually the best way to refine your practice. The other thing I think that you kind of touching on that I think is an issue facing our practice is that... The way that um, UX and, you know, design has um, evolved in the industry, how it's not, it's not robust, it's not academic. And if anything, these days, it's far more lean and agile, um, which has a lot of compromises to it. But what I see is that technology is having such an incredible influence on the planet, like blanket transforming entire cities and transport networks and industries obviously having a huge impact and so so the field of user experience is is actually huge you know like you go to a conference and there's everything up for discussion you know it's not just about you know research practice and 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 the smaller parts of it and I feel like the field does need to perhaps be maybe a little bit more formalized you know maybe there needs to be more especially around ethics ethics of, of research um, ethics of design I mean we talk a lot about it but there isn't really as you say there's no kind of formal body of you know checking in and 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 having peer review and I think that would be really useful um, because it is scaling its its impact and its influence massively mm. you touched on the tension that exists between different ways of developing software like agile and design and that tension's been apparent for quite some time and the I suppose, the trade-offs that get made. But I can't help think to myself that it's still a garbage-in, garbage-out equation and that you can still operate efficiently, but you you do need those guardrails or those best practices or that basic hygiene behind what it is you're trying to achieve in order to ensure that you get fidelity of your findings and that it's actually useful. You know, there's no sense running you know, 10 quick fire interviews with customers if they're full of leading questions and the lens at which you're unpacking those findings are uh, is completely biased. So I agree that having some perspective or some distance and some more rigor would definitely be beneficial. One of the criticisms of consultants, and bearing in mind here, this is, this is not me trying to be unfair, I, I suppose I am a consultant as well, I'm an external design practitioner, is that we have all care and no responsibility for the outcomes of our work. Not always, but it is a, it is a feeling that is out there, particularly from internal teams when they're engaging with externals. Now, I understand that you take particular responsibility and care to ensure that the internal teams are effectively able to integrate and build upon the work that you have been doing for them. How have you done that? Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I I totally understand that perspective of, you know, like the consultant flies in, flies out, you know, dumps some kind of 50 page report and see you later. (laughs) And that's... Mm. It's paid more more to do it, right? As well, probably. Absolutely. And because I really care about long-term change, that's where, you know, when I'm working with a team, I'm looking for ways to 
to have longevity and for people to to be able to take on board um, the practice alone, you know. So building capability with the team so that they can do it themselves is obviously a big part of that. And if, you know, we're creating artifacts, so often I've created or co-created, you know, a large service blueprint or a customer journey map, and you don't want it just to be kind of a dead artifact. You want it to be a living document. So I often design workshops and activities around how to engage with this. How do we use this? How is this useful? And that could be, um, for a while there, it was a large printed artifact on the wall, but obviously we don't have physical space anymore. <laughs> so, mm, that's all disappeared really, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So obviously using, you know, tools like Miro and, you know, online collaboration tools are really fantastic for keeping the artifacts, you know, um, handy and alive. People can keep adding and building on them, creating card sets, you know, creating the types of artifacts that people will continue to engage with um, really helps. But, now, you touched on a project which I discovered of yours where you did create this massive customer journey map. Now, I believe it was a few years ago when you were working with the then director of CX at Digital Arts Network in Melbourne. What cast your mind back to that time? What was the problem that you were trying to solve there for that client? They were looking for opportunities to innovate in their um, retention space so obviously and this was working into the marketing team as well so obviously their focus normally is on acquisition and they were looking for um, opportunities to innovate more in the customer experience longer term so yeah that was really the problem we were trying to solve was kind of delving deeper into what is it like to be a long-term customer and uh, depicting what that journey is like and and helping them identify, you know, point, pain points that then become opportunities for them to innovate, provide something else. Now, maybe this is a little quaint considering, as we've talked about, we no longer have physical spaces anymore, so everything's on a mural or a Miro board. Yeah. But just how, how big was this customer journey at the end of it, this map that you created? I think because we were working in a in an advertising agency, we had the opportunity to use a plan printer. So mm-hmm. we just went for gold and they were like, I think there was about four AOs like all right yeah something yeah it was crazy big and you you talked about this earlier about the importance of not just creating beautiful artifacts but actually helping people to make use of them to understand them and make use of them Uh, you also talked about how you have designed workshops for stakeholders to wrap their heads around on around that that exact thing in this case you had quite a novel approach, at least to me, of how you did that. How did you help the the wider group of stakeholders to understand what it was that they were looking at? I think um, it would also helped me um, synthesize, you know, the information that was there. As I wrote a narrative, I, I wrote a story, and I actually found that this is so much more impactful because, obviously, as as humans, we we love a good story and we engage more when we're told a story and we, we, we feel the pain of the customer if it, the, to- the story is told from the voice of the customer. Rather than looking at an artifact and reading through a graph and reading through, and you can see the story unfold, but having it told to you is a little bit more impactful, I think. So did, is this literally you're in this meeting room and you dim the lights and then like, how, how did this scroll go down? The scroll of the... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think we we started with the narrative and then we got them to stand up and go through the artifact and we guided them through, you know, what the swim lanes and what everything meant. And we gave them areas to focus on, which is often what we do. So um, we'll split up into teams and say, okay, 
you guys engage with this part of the map and come up with you know ideas or what insights that you're seeing but as an intro yes it, it was literally me standing up in front of the map and reading out um, what the journey was like for the customers that we've gotten close to it seems to me that the effort the energy the time that goes into creating and choreographing this type of experience for stakeholders isn't insignificant mm, i'd say a lot of the um a lot of those engagements were done in quite a fast-paced environment and i often find that um obviously because i was in melbourne you know money there on the ground for a short period of time and having that kind of time constraint makes you get more laser focused and and it was really fun you know, it was really fun. It was obviously fun to, for me to be in a different context in a different studio working with different people and fun to have that bandwidth to be creative about how we were going to go about solving the problem and engaging people. So that's why I love designing workshops because, you know, they, they can be, yeah, they can be really fun and engaging. They're an experience. So this kind of loops back to this, you know, this idea that we were talking about with the ecstatic dance, you know, that, that it has a, a journey always has a curve and, a workshop to me has a very distinct beginning, middle and end. And how you take people through that is how much people are going to engage with the material. So. And I suspect, and bearing in mind I wasn't a fly on the wall here, but I suspect if you were to catch up with the people that were in that room on that day, that the thing that they remember will be the story that was told and the way that you facilitated that conversation over and above the you know, the minutiae of the, the detail that was contained in that customer journey map. And when I heard you talk about this experience and how you'd, how you'd in, interacted with the stakeholders in this way, it really felt to me at least that we need to be investing more time and energy in how we communicate the outcomes of our work in a way that people can really connect with so that we actually have impact. You talked about consultants coming in and doing 50-page reports and then flying out. You know, you, this is the exact antithesis of, of that, isn't it? This is actually how do we get into the hearts and minds of these people who are paying us to do a job for them, to help them, so that they can get on and do that job. Absolutely. And that's how you create real change is through genuine connection, in the ideally in the room, physical, you know, but we don't often get that luxury these days. And, yeah, giving them an experience um, is more memorable than giving them a report, basically. Talk to me about the uncomfortable side of what it's like to facilitate workshops sometimes. And, again, I'm projecting here, so if this isn't something that you've experienced, that's completely okay. But what way or ways do you manage or mitigate resistance from people to participate to engage in the workshop or in conversation around a specific topic that you're there to help people to understand or to a problem to solve you know how do you how do you do that dance as the facilitator and, and try and bring them into the fold i think this is something that practitioners are often fearful of mm -hmm. so people that aren't experienced in facilitating workshops their biggest fear is that there's going to be somebody or several people in the room that are going to be resistant to participating, especially when you're talking about a senior leadership team. You know, mm. 
These are pe- busy people, better things to do, you know. Why? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Checking their phones while you're trying to lead the workshop, exactly. that kind of thing. Exactly. And look, my philosophy is if they're resistant in the workshop, you've already missed an opportunity to impact mm-hmm. them. So for me, the art of the good workshop that everyone is engaged in starts way before the actual workshop, before they're in the room. And this is what I mean about the stakeholder interviews and making sure that you've actually spent a little bit of time with each of those people that's going to be there. So they feel a personal connection with you and they've had an opportunity to feel seen and heard by you. That's really it. I mean, it seems really simple, but it's quite dramatic. People are often resistant because they feel like they were invited for the last minute you know, as a box or, you know, I should be here because I've got this role, but nobody's invited me to be part of this project. I had no idea. And you see what I mean? So often it's, you know, they, they don't feel on the inside and so they stay on the outside. The things I've found, to be really honest, um, most uncomfortable about workshops is when I see that the line that you're dancing all the time is what can I really influence? And what are the limits of what I can control? And so sometimes there might be something else going on within the organization, restructures, you know, all sorts of things, people leaving, important people leaving, or, you know, people are navigating a lot of other things outside that workshop that you don't have any control over and you have to give yourself a break. <laughs> you can't do much about that, you know, if somebody is, is going through something. And so it's knowing that it's not, it's not all you and, and they're not all things that you can impact. That is a huge realisation to come to and it's something that I, I personally have to continually in many dimensions of my life remind myself of what's actually in my control and, and what's not. It's actually quite a cathartic exercise to do to try and step back and get that perspective, perspective I've found. Absolutely, yeah, and it reduces your stress. <laughs> Mm, so this majorly. is often what I coach people about, you know, it's like, what, well, what can you really influence? And, you know, here's, what are your options for what you can do and, and, and what can't you do? And that was something that I learned, you know, over and over again for a long time after, you know, yeah, being very, very stressed about the level of responsibility and, and the engagements that I had. And yeah, so it is, it's a, it's a good thing to learn. You're not giving yourself a leave pass there though, right? This isn't just sort of sitting back and going, oh, well, that didn't go to plan. That was out of my hands. Move on. It sounded to me like there was some structure in the way in which you, through your coaching practice and as, an, as a person, as an individual, reflect on and then move forward from those experiences. Absolutely. Absolutely. And even now, you know, I probably still try and take on responsibility for things that aren't really my realm (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and often if I you know we we can be quite hard on ourselves you know sometimes you know we're always trying to achieve the best outcome the most perfect outcome and as human beings we're we're kind of trained to always um, do this what's called sort of negative scanning you know so our brains are actually wired to constantly be looking for the gaps and things that didn't go well and what needs to be fixed and that's the automatic loop our our, our brains our primitive brains are constantly going because it's scanning for risk you know and it it's a it's a way of sort of being able to step back as you say and really reflect on well how's the quality of my thinking here am i am i really are these things that are, are actually expected of me that were you know um within my realm of control or am i just trying to solve everybody's problems with this one project and being really, you know, overly ambitious. Is that something that you've found 
either yourself or the people you're coaching are able to do in the moment. So when things aren't going to plan, you know, when that stakeholder in that workshop is busy checking their phone and your your sort of voice of fear starts going off about the implications of, of what that behavior means for you and your future and, you know, it becomes a life or death, death situation. Is this something that you've been able to interrupt in the moment and regain some perspective and get some distance f- from that? Or is it something that you actually need to put some, you know, physical time and space in the middle of? I think it's both, really. If you can catch it in the moment, amazing, you know. Mm. And that's why it's useful to design pauses, you know, into the workshop. Give yourself a moment when they're busy doing activities. You're like, okay, let's just rescan. How's this going? Are we? Do we pivot? Do we need to, you know, change direction? You know, buy yourself some time. Go, go, take a bathroom break. Go grab a coffee. You know, if you really need to speak to somebody as well, look for the opportunity. Create, you know, use a break and always design a break. So then you can have those break conversations, maybe with some people that you feel you know, have something else going on and they're not able to bring their full attention to the workshop and that gives you the opportunity to have a quick chat with them. Just check in, just like, oh, hey, how's your day going? You don't know, something may may have happened for them really big at home and, and you're not, you don't have that awareness. So I guess you can, you can design it in, but also, you know, obviously after the fact, always, you know, debriefing with yourself and with your team, how things went. I'm going to do a disservice here because I can't remember the name of the particular bias, but... When I was speaking with David Dylan Thomas, who is the person who knows uh, the most in our community, at least as far as I can tell about biases, because he had a podcast called the Cognitive Bias Podcast, he told me about this bias that's once you know about it, and the name's not important, but the bias is basically that we think that people can read us much better than they actually can. And so when you're up in front of a workshop and things aren't going to plan, it's easy for us to fall into a trap where we think that everyone else can see us without our clothes on and that we're exposed and they're going to know that we're a fraud and that things aren't working out. But that's not the case. People don't have, uh, you know, they don't have x-ray vision into our our hearts and minds and our souls. So it's actually quite comforting when you know that that's one of those little triggers I've used in the past, at least where things aren't going to to plan to get some composure back and and to realize that I can choreograph this dance and I'm still in control. And I love what you said there about using breaks and you know, maybe then tangentially approaching someone, check in with them to see what's going on for them because that same principle or that bias applies to other people is we don't know what's going on for them. So that is such a, such a great insight. And you also mentioned workshops. I want to come to a workshop that you delivered recently for UX New Zealand in 2022, which was called Conscious Design Leadership. Now, this is something that you feel, and we've been dancing around this, but you feel very personally connected to, and you've said about this that, and I'll quote you now, supporting the development of conscious awareness and action, both for individuals and organizations, can result in more positive human impact for our planet. What led you to believe this? What was it that you experienced? Maybe it was a combination of things, but what led you to believe this? I guess it's just been part of the journey I've been on and really to offer some insight in terms of that workshop and how it came together. For me, it was an opportunity to consolidate, you know, where am I really at in my career and what 
what's really important to me. And as you've sort of spoken to, you know, in, in my history, I've, I've obviously been strongly in design and UX for, for my whole career. But at the same time, I'm constantly going out and experiencing, well, what's community development with Oxfam like? You know, what's social work and Belize like? And that this these were my attempts to try and find, you know, how can I um, create more purpose and meaning in the work that I do? Do I need to completely leave this field behind and jump into something else, you know? And in the end, I think um, what I'm trying to do with um, exploring conscious design leadership is how do I take the experiences that I have and the tools that I have and use them to create more positive change? So that's where um, conscious design leadership comes from. It's my way of, I guess, applying what I've learned and also some courses that I've recently done over the last couple of years and bringing those together to offer that um, to the community. So one of the most mind-blowing courses I did was the regenerative design practice course. So that's taking a very much a, a more um, environmental lens on the world. And what I'm trying to do is actually kind of re-engineer it back into design practice. And what regenerative practice talks about a lot is this thing called nested systems. So it really is kind of systems thinking, systems design, which, which is in our field now. People talk a lot about this, but it's really acknowledging the larger context that we're all in. In order to do that, we can't be wrapped up in the day-to-day -day fears. You know, we need to take that moment to pause and just see and draw back and get that larger view of what's going on and, and what influences influences are at play and and forces that that I have control of and that I don't have control of and 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 being able to come and operate from that larger view um, ideally acknowledging the potential impacts of of decisions that we're making and I mean this is something I think that David Dylan Thomas also talked about was you know software can have unintended unintended users and how do we know who those are, you know, if we don't stop and take a pause and really look at, you know, well, these are our target customers. These are the people that we want to engage and that we can get a subscription from or whatever, you know, the, the commercial objective is. But who are the unintended users is a fantastic question uh, in terms of looking at the, the kind of invisible players in our environment that, that we're impacting. Someone else who comes to mind when you are talking about unintended consequences and, and and who else might be a user that's outside of our immediate was Eva Penzi Moog who wrote Design for Safety and we spoke about that very thing when it comes to the design of tech products and how they can be used or weaponized to enable dom domestic violence uh, and it's a often bias that we have in design that we focus very heavily on the happy path and we don't spend a lot of time thinking about the alternate and perhaps less happy paths that our products or our services or our experiences can lead to. So that makes a lot of a lot of sense. You've obviously been trying to bring some higher level perspective sort of down into the trenches of design leadership in terms of product and service design leadership from other experiences that you've had and courses that you've been on. How does what you're working on in terms of conscious leadership, how does that differ to regular everyday status quo design leadership? What are the key the key areas of difference between those two? Really, I think it's a, it's a way of really just shining the light on leadership itself requires awareness. <laughs> 
Um, calling it conscious design leadership is just a way to shine the spotlight a bit more on your intention as a leader and the practices that you're using to keep yourself honest and, and keep growing as a leader, um, to not take advantage of the authority that you've been given. But you could just call it, you know, leadership, good leadership, great leadership, you know, that leadership is such a, a complex thing. And it's something that we really need at the moment is leaders that can deal with complexity. Obviously, you know, our environment is getting more and more complex. The demands on leaders are getting, you know, more complex. It's not enough just to have authority and tell people what to do, especially in the next generation of designers and researchers. They don't respond to command and control. <laughs> what I notice is, is they do, you know, that way of leading is, you know, it's designed for a certain context i'm not saying it's outdated um it is needed sometimes in times of crisis um decisions need to be made quickly and people need direction but yeah more and more you know i take a very much a developmental model where i believe that we are we're on a trajectory of constantly responding to these changes and and constantly growing these skills to deal with it and to create environments where everyone feels like they're equally participating and that they have a voice and and yeah I see it around me all the time people that are you know in these different organizations that have different ways of leading and different ways of operating and what that means um, for the type of work that people are able to do and the level of joy and happiness that that they have and, and showing up for the work as well. I, it just, it, this is quite timely. I was on the way back from Matakana on the weekend, and which I was very fortunate to get out of Auckland and have some some nice food up there. But I was listening to an audio book by a coach, actually. He's an executive coach called Marshall Goldsmith. And he wrote a book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And it's almost like what, you, what you're talking about is echoing, or maybe he's echoing you, uh, this uh, this idea of how people can be quite successful using a particular style in their careers, but often all of us have our blinders on and are woefully unaware of the behaviours that we are playing out that other people, uh, because of our position of status and authority in the organisation, are interpreting in ways that we otherwise wouldn't intend. So he gave an example of... Uh, a CEO that would give design feedback and the design team would then go and you know implement that feedback because they took it as an order where he was just thinking that he was just offering up some thoughts. Um, but it's almost like this, the conscious nature of what you're talking about is very much, like you said, I think you used the term shining a light on what it is that we're doing as leaders and actually getting some evidence and perspective to support our current performance at least that's my interpretation of what you're talking about yeah yeah exactly and that classic book you know what got you here won't get you there that definitely is a part of my philosophy so and we see this a lot in in design and ux practice is that people that are have been really on top of their game with their practice the doing what i call the doing it's the moving from doing to leading and being rewarded kind of as a, you know, oh, now you're a manager. I feel rewarded for all those projects that I delivered well and all the impact that I created. And and if you, you need to sort of, when you're moving into leadership, it's not actually about you anymore. The irony is that even though you've been gifted this authority and this visibility and this influence, 
um, it needs to stop being about you being the hero and achieving and you know seeking further reward and more about the team that you're supporting and how can you enable them and that's the switch um, that a lot of people struggle with because they're like you know what you know they they also don't delegate because they're doing they're trying to do to solve all the problems when really now you have a leadership position you need to use strategy and, and different ways of working in relationships to to help facilitate those problems to be solved and not muck in and get into the detail and think oh well, i could do that better and you know so yeah it is a, it is an important shift nothing kills the enthusiasm of a team more than a leader or a manager rolling up and getting their sleeves dirty in advance of the, the team itself i want to come to back to something that you mentioned earlier jodine which was you take a developmental approach now i understand that the the field of adult developmental psychology has played quite an important role in shaping your thinking around conscious design leadership. That wasn't something that I was familiar with. And I'm, assu I'm assuming, unless I'm the only person on the planet, that others won't be as well. What is adult developmental psychology? Well, it's specifically, I, I've been reading um, Robert Keegan's work. So there's a lot of different work on adult um, psychology. But I think it was through being interested in organization design, and following those threads that got me into adult developmental psychology and how I would explain it, how I explain it to other people. And I, I don't understand, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, a psychologist, so it's, you know, I've taken a you know deep study into this, but it is an ongoing thing that I'm studying, is that for a long time, psychologists thought that, you know, there's just childhood development and then you reach adulthood and you're done, you're baked, you know, and that's it. And then what they realized was actually there are some stages that we go through as adults and that can be through um, events in our lives or just the process of time and different stages that we develop different levels of awareness. So this is um, Robert Keegan's work that um, there are these identifiable shifts in our ability to basically engage with complexity. So and it's it's not it's easy to kind of see it as a like a maturity model but it, it it's not really it's really about what's required for the position you're in and if you're in a position of leadership it does require a different level of thinking from you and if you keep operating in the other way before you're a leader it makes leadership harder it makes it more difficult and you might find that oh i'm having challenges my team they don't like me or, you know, I'm not getting them engaged or I'm not making any progress. And, and it may be because of, 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 you know, where you're sort of operating from and what you're able to see from, from where you are. And, you know, in a way, it's a bit of an experiment for me. What I'm piloting is the idea that, you know, if we can create safe spaces for people to, to really come and bring their whole selves and these retreats, for example, that I run or a leadership cohort, a program that I'll be running later this year where people can be themselves and share their challenges and, and share different views and through also deeply listening to each other, it creates a growth path, basically. If, if you're open enough, you, you can start shifting your awareness through different practices and, and that's what I'm interested in because what I what I notice is obviously with increasing complexity of our world it requires a greater ability to understand and hold difference 
you know, hold different perspectives equally, be able to zoom out and see the complexity of what's in front of us without trying to oversimplify it to our own, you know, values and philosophy and impose that on everything. So, and it's not necessarily easy, but I think there are some tools that, that can help. That is such a hard thing to do. And there are certain issues that it's harder for people to to do that than others. Clearly, there are some things playing out at the moment in the United States, which would be very difficult for many people to hold the alternate perspective uh, without feeling some sort of anger or resentment or just overall overwhelm with what's playing out. And yes, I'm talking about the right uh, for women to choose what happens to their bodies. It doesn't take a stretch of the imagination um, to imagine that that is quite a, an emotional topic. But I, I feel like you are right that it is important to at least have the facility to adopt that arm's length perspective in leadership and realize that not everyone sees the world through the same uh, set of glasses that you do. You've said, and I'll quote you again, once you find your truth and you're in your values, it's very important to find that orientation. It's also important to be able to dialogue with other people with different views. How do you encourage, or how do you do this maybe yourself, but how do you encourage the people you're coaching to adopt that perspective or try and embrace the fact that not everyone sees the world the same way and then use that? I often get them to use curiosity and deep listening. And um, I often speak to this principle of, you know, first seek to understand and then be understood. Because when we're rushing or when, we have, when we're angry or in a reactive kind of space, there's no room for the other person the other person's perspective or experience. And a very typical thing I'll do in my coaching is that if somebody is experiencing a conflict of interest with another person, um, I will encourage them to have some one-on-one -on -one time. Don't email, don't Slack, don't, you know, have some one-on-one -on -one time and be open to just listen and understand what that, that person's vision and objectives is. What, what is it that they're trying to do? What's their situation? How do they see things? And then also mirror it back to them. So they know that they've been listened to and that you haven't spent that whole time going, yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, in your own mind. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, like genuinely, genuinely listen and play it back and check that you've heard them correctly. That alone starts creating a new bond in that relationship and kind of calms things down when people feel listened to. It also gains respect that, you know, you've taken the time to really understand that person and they are likely to be more open to hear you out as well. So it is a, a, a the basics of, of deep listening and, and, and mirroring back. They're really fundamental in human relationships, and I really believe they have a lot of potency to transform the way we connect. Difference or differentiation is something that as humans we really struggle with, and we struggle with it because of our primal brains again getting in the way and thinking, this person's different from me. They're a threat. You know, they're not part of my family, or I don't feel safe with them because they're different and I feel safe with people that they might even just look the same and that makes me feel safe. They might not actually be the same at all. They might have a completely different view. And what I believe is that in the workplace, it's such a unique opportunity to, to come across people that are different from you because 
you know, in your own life, you have your family and your friends, you know, and your family are familiar to you and your friends are familiar to you and you've chosen. So the workplace is one of the few places in your life that you will get to practice. How do I deal with difference? differences could be anything you know I mean obviously there's the obvious ones but you know they're also subtle ones these come up in even in intimate relationships as well you know people that we've chosen to be in our life and you you come up against a difference and you want to not see it you know and you want to just kind of make it all the same and it's so important to just create that space um, to really listen and what it does is it teaches our brains that there is someone else there who has their own experience and they are different from us and it's okay and it's not a threat and you know so um yeah i, I really powerfully believe in that um the power of of, of deep listening it, it really is changes as well yeah, it certainly does. I was wondering about this because it's, it's something that I feel like I work on in the work that I do, given what it is that I do. And certainly in this podcast, I've had a number of guests say to me that it feels like they've just had a therapy session, which I'm not sure is a good or a bad thing. They didn't say it was a good or a bad therapy session, but there is something powerful in really genuinely being interested in what other people have experienced and how they think and feel about things. Is use of this knowledge, though, of how to listen and then using that in a leadership role to engineer a situation to suit what I would assume would be the the leader's end goals, is this leadership or is this walking a line between leadership and manipulation? Well, again, yeah, it depends on your intention. So, and this is where I come back to, you know, values and and what it is that you are trying to achieve as a person. Of course, you know, you, you can have an intention that's quite self-serving and and you can employ any kind of tool. If that's your intention, that's, you know, what the result is going to be. Yeah, that's why I start with the individual. So I talk about in, in the um, Conscious Leadership Program, I talk a lot about the three lines of work. And the first line of work is itself you've first got to understand yourself and understand where you are and what you're about and you know who your ancestors were and what they were about and how that informs who you are and it's quite a deep inquiry but you need to kind of do that work before you can then go out and look at what influence what things am I influencing and impacting that is a confronting space to find yourself in I did a leadership retreat I was, was more like a series of residentials when I was 18 called the Future Leaders Program. I'm not sure if I'm now currently a leader. It's sort of, I think that's up for debate, but that was some time ago. This is going back 18 years or so. And the, that, that um, program started with self. And I think we spent the first six or nine months out of the 18 months on self journaling, inquiry, conversation with others about ourselves from memory so yeah it's it's one of those uncomfortable spaces that we very really give ourselves and I'm generalizing here but enough time these days I feel like we're so busy a lot of the time that the the kind of retreats and uh, that you that you facilitate and these opportunities that we have to actually step back and dive into some of these things at depth particularly when it comes to our own self is just such a, a vital thing to do and can really help you to be a better human and also be more effective when you're working with helping other humans to achieve what they want to achieve. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I think these spaces are becoming more and more important. The ability to carve off a few moments for yourself to do those practices like journaling and, and whatever it might be, whatever suits the individual. You know, I'm not going to be prescriptive about, you know, you must do, you know, mm. half an hour of yoga and half an hour of meditation every morning. <laughs> Feels like homework, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, work it into your life, everyone is so different. And yes, things are hectic. And I guess what I would say, though, is that the outcomes are greater enjoyment, less stress, you know, and those are things that, that people want. <laughs> and that can't, I don't believe can be achieved by continually just rushing around and responding to, to the needs that are around you. Um, you need to take some time to reorientate. Jodine, you've been in the trenches of design for over two decades and you're actively helping designers to improve their practice through what you've done with the coaching business that you've set up. When your back's been against the wall, when things haven't been going your way, when you've been working through that inevitable resistance that comes up for all of us, what's the story that you fall back on? What's the, the, the thing that you tell yourself? What's the What's that? message that helps you get through those challenging situations i'm not sure if it's a message because yeah i mean i use different kind of i guess mantras at different times when needed to to motivate and to focus etc but i will say that there is this somehow this inherent drive within me to make things happen and that tends to keep me going and and, and give me momentum and that tends to be independent of what's going on around me when things get really sticky and tricky, and they often do for me in the past, you know, I, I've been known to take on the, the really tricky projects, you know, or was given the ones that were really unknown and ambiguous, and I'd be like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Run to yeah, the fire. Let's Run go to on the this fire. adventure because I always think if you take on the things that are different and quirky, you know, you're going you're gonna to develop yourself in interesting ways and you're going to develop skills that maybe other people don't have the opportunity to if they're going to play it safe. And there's nothing wrong with playing it safe either. It's just in terms of how I've been shaped in my life, I tend to want variety and newness. And yeah, I guess regardless of the difficulties, I would say maybe one of my biggest drives is just growth. You know, it's going to change me. I'm going to get the learnings and that's motivational. Hmm. Jodine, I've really enjoyed our conversation about design and, and getting into conscious leadership with you today. Thank you for sharing your stories and your, and your insights with me. Oh, it was a pleasure, Brendan. It's, it's interesting to be on the other side of things and being asked the interesting questions and which help me crystallize my own perspective. So it's, it's been really useful and, and interesting for me too. Well, you've certainly given me some things to think about over lunch, that's for sure. Jodine, if people want to find out more about you and about Fireside Consulting, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, well, head to my website, um, firesideconsulting.biz. From there, you can um, you can book a time to chat with me. If you're interested in coaching, I just do a you know free little chat to kind of understand what your needs are. You can also join UX Connect, which is an online community that happens monthly. And you can also register your interest in the retreats or the leadership programs. So, yeah, love to hear from you, even just to say hi. 
Great. Well, I'll make sure that I post those links in the show notes, Jodine. Thank you. And to everyone that's tuned in, it's been great having you here as well. As I mentioned, we'll be linking to all of those great resources in the show notes, including where you can find Jodine. And there'll be detailed chapters of our conversation as well on YouTube. So you can hop specifically to any area that has been of particular interest to you. If you've enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave the podcast a review subscribe as well so it turns up weekly in uh, in your podcast app and also pass the show along to someone else who you feel would get some value out of these conversations about design and product depth if you want to reach out to me you can find me on linkedin just Google, just linkedin search me brendan jarvis it should turn up uh, or you can find a link at the bottom of the show notes to my linkedin profile so you can get to me that way or head on over to the space in between.co.nz that's the space in between.co.nz and until next time keep being brave hey.